Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And I am Steve. <laughs> I don't I don't have any witty banter this week. You know you don't? Well, no, I don't. I, I It's been just a plain old boring week. Not really much exciting going on. Well, this week, I would, I would like to welcome and thank two new followers. I think it is <laughs> P... P.L. Fockless. It's spelled P-L-F-A-C-H-L-E-S-S. And Corina. I can say <laughs> Corina. And I just want to thank them for finding us and making uh, the effort to follow us on Podbean. But we, like, like we said last week, we have a chore for you. You now have to go out, tell five friends about an hour of your life, and get them to follow us. But seriously, thank you for uh, for following us and listening and we hope you enjoy the episodes. And that's just our followers on Podbean. We're on all of the things. Like yeah. we don't we don't always get notifications and we get new followers on like Apple or Google or iHeartRadio or TuneIn or and Amazon Music or whatever it's called or all of the other platforms that we're on. Let's keep it modest, Kim. I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> but seriously, thank you. Okay. So if we sound different this week, it's because we have new microphones. Oh, here we go with the nerdy tech stuff. Okay, so it might take me a little bit of tweaking to get the sound just right because to go through a bunch of stuff, I really don't know how it's going to sound once we get this published. I know how it sounds in my ears right now and when I do the stuff. But I don't know exactly how it's going to sound when we when we get it published. So it might take a week or two. We got fancy new microphones. Yeah. Steve says these are the microphones that like all the big time famous podcasters have. Michael Jackson recorded Thriller on these. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's good like, enough. Yeah, they're, they're for the king of pop. It's good enough for us. Yeah, they're they're sure SM7Bs. So yeah, if if you were wondering, <laughs> but um, anyway. Saying that, I, I again want to thank Joe and the crew at Sweetwater for all their expert advice. We we pretty much purchase all our gear exclusively from Sweetwater, and it's not just for the candy. Yeah, yeah, they they send candy every time they you buy do. something. But Maybe that's just Joe. Maybe he's just sending it to us because we're I awesome. Know. I don't know, but their customer service is absolutely the best. You get personal every time we buy something. We get personal attention from Joe. Uh, he always calls, follows up. He, I think Joe actually listens to our episodes sometimes to give us a little bit of feedback on, hey Joe. on what we're doing out there. But Joe, seriously, thank you for all you're doing. If you are Joe's boss, you should give Joe a big raise. Amen. Yes. Also, for our listeners, just so you know, Sweetwater is not paying us. Like, no. this is not an ad. This no. is, we actually do use Sweetwater, and we use Shure, and we use, I mean, we. this is what we actually use. Um, and we are just trying to, if you're in the recording business, uh, Sweetwater is where it is at. So you should definitely check them out. Yeah. But Sweetwater, if you didn't want to send us a check. We're not going to we'll, turn we'll, it down. Yeah. We're not going to turn it down, but, th- but thanks. Bill. We'll S- probably seriously. just use it to buy more stuff from Sweetwater. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, that's all it's going to happen. Send us gear instead. But seriously, thanks Joe for all that you've done to help, help the show out and what you do. Um, we are getting ready for St. Patrick's Day, which will be coming up. Yeah, and reco- pretty soon. Yeah. So uh, COVID restrictions are starting to be relaxed where we are in Ohio. Uh, there's talk of health mandates being lifted sometime in the next month or two. Um, we hope. But we're not out of the woods yet. 
we do, we had plans to do a live episode from St. Patrick's Day from a party, um, but that got kind of nixed again this year, just like it did last year, but maybe because, next year. Because they've not been relaxed yet. Yeah, no, not yet. Um, so I don't think that there's going to be any uh, St. Patrick's Day parties again this year, unfortunately. Not um, to the grand scale that... Yeah, no, no. Yeah, we usually have, uh, so our local St. Patrick's Day brouhaha at uh, the Dublin pub is actually one of the top 10 in the country, Um, but it didn't happen last year and it doesn't look like it's going to happen this year. Dub pub always finds a way around it. They had special Jameson bottles that the the uh, staff all signed last year. And, and they, I mean, they were the first ones, I think, or one of the first ones in the area to do carry out. Did they block um, off the street for St. Patrick's yeah, Day? Yeah. So they're yeah. going to, they're going to find something to do, but it's not going to be our normal party in the, in the streets like it normally is. But next year, next, next year, year, I think it's going to be back. Um, but if you're listening to us in Ireland and you want to be our guest for St. Patrick's Day, we'd love to have you on the show. You can just email at us, email us at alosthour at gmail.com, and we would absolutely love to have you on the show. Any other housekeeping, Kim? Uh, no, I don't think so. Like I said, it was kind of a boring week um, this week. We're going to close out our Outlaw series, and we are we have some ideas in, in mind for future shows, another series that we'd like to start working on pretty soon. But I think we're going to do a couple of one-offs in the meantime while we get kind of our ducks in a row uh, for the next big series. Um, but so we're going to close out our Outlaw series today. Just like last week, we thought we knew a little bit about Billy the Kid, and we were wrong. And the same thing happened this week. We thought we would do a simple episode about an outlaw and him doing outlaw things. Um, Once again, somebody lost their head. And once we got into our research, though, we discovered how complex this individual was. And uh, and we were reminded that one of us studied Spanish for a lot of years and one of us didn't. Um, so a common trend, was he an outlaw or was he a hero? Also, this uh, well, this outlaw um, started young at about the age of 16. Um, it depends on where you stand if he was an outlaw or a hero. But our guy this week is even more complex than the guys that we've had in the last couple of weeks. And it's amazing to me that what we thought we knew really only scratched the surface. Um, and what we thought we knew isn't even the biggest part of the story. And so now I'm thinking that the education system has failed me. So do we call him an outlaw or maybe a bandito would be more accurate? Do we call him general? Do we call him governor? By now, you've probably figured out who we're talking about. If not, Steve, would you care to enlighten the good folks? Or do we call him a revolutionary? Uh, Which he uh, was. That is true. So today we're talking about, and I will butcher this. Kim, do you want to go ahead and say that? Doroteo Arango Arambula, better known as Francisco or, or Pancho, Pancho Villa. Villa. Okay. Pancho was born on June 5th, 1878, and he lived until June, July 23rd, 1923. Pancho was a Mexican revolutionary general. He was, now let's be clear here, he was not a socialist, he was not a communist, but he did have a utopian vision for Mexico. As a commander of the Division of the North, he was basically the ad hoc leader, some say dictator, of the northern Mexico state of Chihuahua. Now, let me say something about Chihuahua. Due to its size, the mineral wealth, and the proximity of the United States, 
made him a major player in the revolutionary military and the politics of this time during of, the Mexican of Revolu- Mexico of Mexico yeah. during during the Mexican Revolu- Revolution. His um, charisma and effectiveness gave him great popularity, particularly in the north, and he was the provisional governor of Chihuahua in 1913 and 1914. So, I mean, he's a he's not just you're running not the just mill. a bandit. Yeah, he's not just your run of the mill guy here. Yeah. However, his violence and ambition prevented his uh, from being accepted into the pantheon of national heroes until some. 20 years after his death. And so I think that even is an indicator of the importance that he played in the in the history of Mexico. Well, and the same was true with Ned Kelly too, yeah. you know. He was a he was an outlaw until he wasn't. Yeah. Until he was a hero. Yeah, but Pancho was the governor. That's yeah, true. So, yeah, yes. so I mean, yeah. he's Okay, so Today, his memory is honored by many Mexicans and numerous streets and neighborhoods in Mexico are named for him. In 1916, he raided Columbus, New Mexico, which led to the punitive expedition commanded by none other than General John G. Pershing of World War I fame. Pershing chased him for a year but never caught up to Pancho. Villa and his followers, known as Velistas, Velistas used tactics, tactics such as propaganda and firing squads against his enemies. They uh, they expropriated Hacienda land for distribution to peasants and to soldiers. He robbed and commandeered trains. And like the other revolutionary generals, he printed his own money to pay for his cause. I wish it was that easy in real yeah, life. Like, yeah, I'm I, just going to print yeah, we some money. A, and... We wouldn't have a studio down here. We'd be running a printing press. Right? Okay. Um, despite a lot of research by... Uh, by Mexican and foreign scholars, many of the details of Pancho Villa's life are in dispute. What is not in dispute is that the violence that Villa used um, for decades led to political instability and the economic insecurity for Mexico. So that basically is just a summary of the story. And now I think we're going to... Yeah, we're going to try and break it down as simply as possible. We've eliminated a lot of names and translated as much Spanish as we could. Um, I will probably be cutting in a lot. Like I said, I studied Spanish um, for several years in college after studying it in high school as well. I'm not fluent by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I linguistically know it a little bit better than Steve does. So if I jump in, that's... What are you, what are you saying, Kim? I'm, I'm saying that I've studied Spanish and you haven't. Um, so if I jump in, that's, that's the only reason why. Uh, so... Um, so just hang on and enjoy this episode. Not much is known about Pancho Villa's early life. Most records claim that he was born near San Juan del Rio, Durango, on Ooh. June 5th, 1878, the son of Augustin Arango and Maria Michaela Arambula. Pancho, are you going to do that every time I say a Spanish no, name? No. Pancho was from an uneducated peasant family. The little schooling he received was provided by the local church-run village school. And when his father died, Arango began to work as a sharecropper to help support his mother and four siblings. Most accounts of his life agree that he moved to Chihuahua at the age of 16, but he soon returned to his village after learning that a hacienda owner had tried to sexually assault his younger sister. Who Basically was only rape t- his younger sister. Yeah, yep. who was only 12 years old at the time. Hey, before we go any further, can you... 
give a definition, explain what a hacienda is. Yeah, because that's going to be, that's kind of a crucial element to the story. A hacienda essentially is something, it's similar to a plantation, um, minus the slavery part of it. So a hacienda is basically a large plot of land with like a main house. Um, There might be some servants' quarters and different things, but it's basically just a huge plot of land owned by one wealthy landowner or by the rich folks, yeah, Yeah. or a wealthy landowning family. Okay. Uh, Now, Pancho, thanks for educating me. You are very welcome. So, Pancho uh, confronted the man who raped his sister. Um, tried. Tried to rape yep. his sister. The man's name was Augusta Negrete and shot him dead. And then he stole a horse, like all good pandits do, and took off toward the rugged Sierra Madre Mountains, staying one step ahead of the approaching police. And from 1894 to 1910, Pancho Villa spent most of his time in the mountains running from the law. And by 1896, he had joined some other bandits and soon became their leader. Via and his group of bandits would steal cattle, rob shipments of money, and commit additional crimes against the wealthy. By stealing from the rich and often giving to the poor, some saw him as a broader-day Robin Hood. His notoriety as a bandit and his skills at escaping capture caught the attention of men who were planning a revolution. And these men understood that Via's skills could be used as a guerrilla fighter during their revolution. Okay, so this is where the bandito part came mm-hmm. in during yep. this. So he got his reputation... There while he was on the run, just trying to survive, basically. So much of this, it just amazes me at how similar outlaw stories are. It all starts when they're 15, 16 years old. It all starts with somebody stealing a horse after somebody assaults a family member, usually a little sister. At least in the guys that we've covered, but it's been purely unintentional, so... Yeah. It just seems to be... Coincidence or not? I don't know. There seems... It's kind of formulaic, if you ask me. Pancho underwent a transformation... You know, from basically from bandito bandit after meeting with Abraham Gonzalez, who was basically he was the political representative of Francisco Madero. And he they met in Chihuahua. Francisco was was opposing the continuing and lengthy presidency of Porfirio Diaz. Right? Porfirio. Okay. Close though. Close. Gonzalez potential in Via. He saw the potential in Villa as a military ally and turned Villa onto the political world. Ugh, politics, they just ruin everything. Villa now believed that he was fighting for the people to break the power of the Hacienda owners over the poverty-stricken farmers and the sharecroppers. During this period, Chihuahua was dominated by wealthy landowners and mine owners. One family alone controlled land covering in excess of Seven million acres. Holy cow. Yeah, that's that's 28,000 square kilometers. That's bigger than some countries, you know? Good yeah. grief. And yeah, so, you know, when we're talking Hacienda, some of these places are huge. I forget how big Mexico is. Yeah. Like, I don't really think about it much. Yeah. On uh, November 20th, 1910, the Mexican Revolution began. The revolution was intended to overthrow the dictatorship of President Diaz. After nearly 35 years of rule, the the Mexican people were done with basically what they said was his corrupt government. Diaz's political situation untenable, and his poorly paid conscript troops were no match for the motivated volunteers fighting for freedom. The anti-reelectionists, as they were known, removed Diaz from office after a few months of fighting. Villa helped defeat the federal 
army of uh, Diaz in favor of Madero in 1911 in the first battle of Ciudad yeah, Juarez. Ciudad Juarez. Ciudad Juarez. Americans sitting on top of railroad boxcars in El Paso, Texas, watched the battle. So basically, they were sitting across the Rio Grande River and watched this fight. It kind unfold. of reminds me of the American Civil War, too. Like, yeah, you would the, hear the stories battle, yeah. about people just like yeah. packing picnic lunches and going and watching battles, which I, I mean, I guess we kind of still do the same thing now with reenactments and stuff, but there nobody's actually getting killed, generally yeah. speaking. Um, I, I can't imagine like just camping out and watching a war, eating yeah. sandwiches, drinking Kool-Aid. Yeah. Well, he also signed a movie deal as a way to raise money for his campaign. And there's a movie about this with uh, what? Antonio Banderas. Yeah. So, and that, that kind of covers this a little bit. Yeah. We started watching it a little bit earlier. Uh, I think we're going to finish it after the show. It's called um, Starring Pancho Villa as Himself, I think is what it's called. I think so. It's really good. Yeah. So far. So, Diaz was exiled and he left Mexico. Madero became president. And on May 1st, 1919, Pancho Villa married Soledad Cienes. Holguin? Pretty close. Pretty close. She was Villa's only legal wife until his death in 1923. Interesting distinction there. Yeah. Although many women claimed to have been married to Pancho Villa. In 1946, the uh, the legislature recognized her as Villa's only legal wife after proving the pair had actually had a civil and a church wedding. Hmm. Now, politics being politics soon brought a counter-rebellion led by Pascual Orozco against Madero. Villa gathered his troops and fought along with General Victoriano Huerta to support Madero. However, Huerta viewed Villa as an ambitious competitor and later accused him of stealing a horse in insubordination. I mean, yeah, he stole some horses. What started all of this? A, he was a competitor. Mm. Yeah. Then, That's mystery. Then, Inti- intrigue. Huerta had Villa sentenced to execution in an attempt to dispose of him. Reportedly, Villa was standing in front of a firing squad waiting to be shot when a telegram from President Madero was received commuting his sentence to imprisonment. And guess what? He escaped. But during Villa's imprisonment, a revolutionary who was in prison at the time helped to improve his poor reading and writing skills, which would... So he made the best out of he a really bad did. situation. He did. And that would serve him well in the future during his service as a provisional governor in the state of Chihuahua. Now, after crushing the Orozco Rebellion, Victoriano Huerta, with the federal army he commanded, held the majority of military power in Mexico. Huerta saw an opportunity to make himself dictator, and he began to conspire with people such as Bernardo Reyes, Felix Diaz, and U.S. Ambassador Henry Lane Wilson, which resulted in the 10 tragic days and the assassination of President Madero. Now, after Madero's murder, Huerta proclaimed himself as provisional president, and Vinustiano Carranza (laughs) then proclaimed the plan of Guadalupe to oust Huerta from office as an unconstitutional usurper. The new group of politicians and generals who joined to support Carranza's plan were collectively styled as the Constitutionalist Army of Mexico. And Villa's hatred of Huerta 
became more personal and intense after March 7th, 1913, when Huerta ordered the murder of Villa's political mentor, Abraham Gonzalez. Villa recovered Gonzalez's remains and gave his friend a hero's funeral in Chihuahua. And Villa joined the rebellion against Huerta, crossing the Rio Grande into Ciudad Juarez with only eight men, two pounds of coffee, two pounds of sugar, and 500 rounds of rifle ammo. So while this is going on, the new United States president, Woodrow Wilson, dismissed Ambassador Wilson and began to support Carranza's cause. Villa's remarkable remarkable generalship and recruiting appeal, uh, combined with his ingenious fundraising methods, you know, like printing his own money. <laughs> or making a movie. <laughs> or making a movie. Um, in his support of rebellion would be a key factor in forcing Huerta from office just in a little over a year, on July 15th, 1914, this was the time Villa's greatest fame and success. He recruited soldiers, both Mexican and mercenary, soldiers from the U.S. or people from the U.S., and raised money via methods such as forced assessments, which is, like, pay me <laughs> for protection money, on the uh, hostile hacienda owners and through train robberies and other bandito activities. In one notable escapade, he held 122 bars of silver ingot from a train robbery and a Wells Fargo employee hostage and forced Wells Fargo to help him fence the bars for spendable cash. A quick, hard-fought series of victories in Ciudad Juarez and Tierra Blanca, Chihuahua, and... Ojinaga. Ojinaga followed. Could you imagine if you were that Wells Fargo employee? Yeah. I don't oh, know what that what, what would that be like. I, like would that be? He was an, probably scared. I'd say unless that would be like, a heck you know, of a story to tell yeah, your kids. Like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just, I just need the money. So yeah. don't, don't worry about it. Here's some ice cream. <laughs> yeah. But but then like but you know that that Wells Fargo employee. I mean, if he was, if if he Pancho wanted to be Villa a part was, of the movie, I bet. Yeah, if Via was like that, like, hey man, it's cool. Just, You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Don't but worry, but just can it. can when you get out of this, can you just like let people know that you were terrified and that I'm a super scary dude and and kind of play it up? Yeah, I bet maybe, that's what happened. Maybe. Anyway, when Via became uh, he then became the provisional governor of the state of Chihuahua as governor of Chihuahua. Via raised more money for a drive to the south by printing his own currency, as we'd mentioned <laughs> earlier. It's he crazy. De- he decreed his paper money to be traded and accepted as well along with the uh, gold Mexican pesos under penalty of execution. Then See, he, that's the way to get stuff done. I'm going to print money, you're going to accept it, or I'm going to chop your head off. Yeah, well, that, that, that's a method. <laughs> he then forced the wealthy to trade their gold for his paper pesos by decreeing gold to be counterfeit money. <laughs> so that gold, your gold's worthless, but my paper money is the standard these days. <laughs> he also confiscated the gold of banks in the case of uh, Banco Monero by holding a hostage a member of the bank's family until the location of the bank's gold was revealed. Via's political stature at that time was so high that banks in El Paso, Texas, accepted his paper pesos at face value. So it's like a one-to-one exchange. That's pretty amazing. It is. That's that's pretty incredible. His so general- yeah, he, was, he was good with the United States. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
His generalship drew enough admiration from the U.S. military that he was invited to Fort Bliss to meet Brigadier General John J. Pershing, who was chasing him at one point, right? In the future. Oh, okay. His new pile of loot was used to purchase stock to pull wagons, cavalry horses, uh, ammunition, food, mobile hospital facilities like railroad cars and horse ambulances, Uh, staffed with Mexican and American volunteer doctors. He rebuilt the railroad south of Chihuahua City. The rebuilt railroad then transported Villa's troops and artillery south, where he defeated federal forces. After one battle at Torreon, Carranza issued a puzzling order for Villa to break off action south of Torreon and instead ordered him to divert to attack Saltillo and threatened to cut off Villa's coal supply if he didn't comply. Now, Carranza was attempting to rob Villa of his glory and keep victory for his own motives. And a little aside here, coal was needed for railroad locomotives to pull trains transporting soldiers and supplies, and therefore it was pretty necessary to every general. Now, this was widely seen as an attempt by Carranza to divert Villa from a direct assault on Mexico City so as to allow Carranza's forces coming in from the west to take the capital first. And they did enter Mexico City ahead of Villa. Okay, we said politics or politics. I mean, yeah, this, doesn't it, matter what country, what age, yeah. what whatever. Yeah, hope hope you're staying with us as we go because this is a pretty cool story. So there was an expensive and disrupted diversion since Villa's enlisted men were paid the then enormous sum of one peso per day, and each day of delay cost thousands of pesos. Villa did attack Saltillo as ordered and won the battle. Villa was disgusted by what he saw as egoism and he resigned via staff officers although saw this but they pleaded for via to withdraw his resignation and defy Carinza's Carinza's orders and proceed to attack Zacateas which was a strategic mountainous city considered to be nearly impregnable Zacateas was the source of much of Mexico's silver which made a supply of funds for whoever had it a victory there would mean that Huerta's uh, chance of holding the remainder of the country would be very slim indeed. Villa accepted his staff's advice, canceled his resignation, and defeated the Federals in the taking of Zacatias in the bloodiest battle of the revolution. With the military forces counting approximately 7,000 dead and 5,000 wounded, and an unknown numbers of civilian casualties. And all of this started with eight guys, two pounds of coffee, and two pounds of sugar at 500 rounds of ammo. Yeah, Crazy. Yeah, well, there is a memorial and a museum on one of the key defensive points of the battle. For tourists to get up there, you have to use an aerial tram because it's so steep. The loss of this place in June 1914 was the final straw in Huerta's regime, and Huerta left for exile... In July four, on July 14th, 1914. This was the beginning of the split between Villa and the, being the champion of the poor and the rich. His selfishness, basically, and attitude became self-destructed, alienating, you know, power corrupts, I guess, alienating most of the people he needed to hold power, and it doomed him as well. Villa was forced out of Mexico City in 1915 following a number of incidents between himself, his troops, and the citizens of the city, and the humiliation of President Eulalio Gutierrez. The return of Carranza and the constitutionalists to Mexico City from Veracruz followed. 
Villa then rebelled against Carranza and Carranza's chief general, Alvaro Obregón. Unfortunately, Villa's talent for generalship began to fail him in 1915. And when he faced General Obregón in the first battle of Celea on April 7 or April 15th, sorry, repeated charges of Villa's vaunted cavalry proved to be no match for Obregón's entrenchments in modern machine guns. You almost said cavalry, didn't I you? I did. I hate it. I get them mixed up all the time. I know there's a difference, and I always have. To, I always second guess I myself. Could, I could see it on your face. It's. I could almost almost mess it up, but I didn't. In the second battle of Celaya, Obregón lost one of his arms to artillery. Nonetheless, Villa lost the battle. Bet that hurt. I bet it did. Both of them. Villa retrenched to Chihuahua and attempted to refinance his revolt by having a firm in San Antonio, Texas, mint more of his currency. (laughs) But that effort met with limited success. I need more money. (laughs) Make me some more. And the value of Villa's paper pesos dropped to a fraction of their former value as doubts grew about his political viability. Villa began ignoring the advice of the most valuable member of his military staff, Felipe Angeles, and eventually Angeles left for exile in Texas. So you're staying with us so far. It's a lot. I never knew this side of Pancho Villa. Like I said, I just thought he was just like, a bandit and made some raids and the cavalry and everyone chased him. Boy, you were wrong. Yeah. I had no idea that about this. Um, but let's get into the part of the story that most Americans are familiar with. This is the, um, the, what, what is called the punitive expedition. The United States following the diplomatic policies of Woodrow Wilson, who was the president of the United States at the time, believed that supporting Carenza was the best way to expedite establishment of a, of a stable Mexican government. And they refused to allow more arms to be supplied to Villa and allowed Mexican constitutionalist troops to be re- relocated at U.S. railroads. Villa, possibly out of a sense of betrayal, began to attack Americans. He was, further, he was also further enraged by Obregón's use of searchlights, which, powered by American electricity, to help repel a um, an attack, a night attack on one of the border towns in Sonora on November 1st, 1915. In January 1916, a group of Villa's troops attacked a train on the Mexican Northwestern Railway, railway <laughs> near Santa Isabel, Chihuahua, and killed 18 American employees of the Asarco Company. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. On March on March 9th, 1916, Villa ordered 1,500. However, this number is disputed by at least one uh, official U.S. Army report stating only 500 to 700 Mexican raiders made a uh, cross-border attack into Columbus, New Mexico. That's still a lot of people. That's still a lot of people. This raid was in response to the United States government's official recognition of Carenza's regime and for the loss of lives in battle due to defective bullets purchased from the United States. Hmm. Yeah, he, he was a little upset at this time. They attacked a detachment of the 13th United States Cavalry, seized 100 horses and mules, burned the town, killed 10 soldiers and 8 civilian residents, and took with them a lot of ammunition and weapons. President Wilson responded to the Columbus raid by sending 6,000 troops under General John G. Pershing to Mexico to pursue and catch or capture Pancho Villa. Wilson also deployed several divisions of Army and National Guard troops to protect the southern flank of the United States border against further raids and counterattacks. 
So these actions by the United States, as we said, became known as the punitive expedition. Punitive being... Punishment. Punishment, yeah. yeah. During the search for Pancho Villa, the United States launched its first... Here's some trivia. Launched its first air combat mission with eight airplanes. George Patton, trivia, also led the United States Army's first vehicle-mounted attack while chasing Pancho Villa. Wow. What year was this? It was it was 1916, so the airplane... 11 know, years old. Yeah, Wilbur well, Norville. No. 1908. 1903. 03? 03 was the first flight, so... It, it's the beginning of aviation. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that didn't take long. Yeah. So, at the same time Pershing was hunting via, Poncho was also being sought by Carenza's army. Everybody wanted a piece of Poncho via. The Mexicans and the Americans. Mm. Instead of capturing Pancho Villa, Pershing encountered uh, significant local hostility and engaged in a skirmish with Carranza's forces. Now, this story is about to get as complicated as U.S. politics in the Middle East. Because it's not complicated already. Yeah, I mean, not just U.S. politics, but just politics in the Middle East. It's There's a lot. Which whole lot of whole lot of. Which, may I point this out at this time? We live in the present, and we tend to forget things were just as complicated in history as they are today. And I think this is why I personally tend to see things through, see through all the drama that politicians drum up these days. Seriously, think about it. Every presidential election since I've been alive, I've heard it declared, this is the most important election of our lifetime. It, the world is going to end if candidate X doesn't get elected did you, did you ever hear the story about the little boy that cried wolf? Yeah, and I honestly think that I disagree with people who say that politics are, when you say they're just as complicated in our history as they are today, I would say politics were more complicated in history because now we have the benefit of hindsight. A lot of it, you know, what they say, nothing new under the sun, history repeats itself and whatever other cliche you care to use. We've seen it before and we know how it turned out. So I would say that politics are less crazy today than they were in history because we have the benefit of seeing how things turned out and learning from our mistakes or successes. Yeah, I mean, the the whole point of this is we we just kind of tend to see things happening yeah. right now. We don't see how complicated the past really was. You gotta learn from history. I mean, we've 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 lived through it before. Same stuff, different times. Yep. Same stuff, different day. You gotta learn from history. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. More old cliches. Anyway. In the meantime, Carranza, who had counted on U.S. support for his presidency, attempted to keep civil relations with the United States despite the raid. Likewise, in the face of mounting U.S. public pressure for war with Mexico... Lots of politics going on. It's awful. President Wilson and State Secretary... uh, Or Secretary of State, I'm sorry. Robert Lansing also wished to improve relations and hoped that the issue of border raids could be solved by negotiations with the Carranza government. So Wilson selected U.S. Army Chief of Staff Hugh L. Scott to negotiate with the Mexican government. And they entered into negotiations in Juarez and El Paso, but failed to produce an agreement on anything more concrete than further talks. Kind of like every during the Korean War. Ever, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, on May 6th, another cross-border raid by Vilista guerrillas 
occurred in Glen Springs, Texas, causing more U.S. troops to enter into Mexico to pursue the raiders. Tensions flared again when U.S. troops pursuing Villa instead clashed with the Carancista forces at the Battle of Carrizal on June 21st, resulting in the capture of 23 soldiers. So everybody's fighting everybody at this point. Demonstrators in Mexico marched in opposition to the U.S. expedition. Aware of Wilson's anger over the recent battle, Carranza wrote to Wilson on July 4th, suggesting direct negotiations. Wilson and Carranza agreed to the establishment of a joint high commission, which met at New London, Connecticut on September 6th. The commission issued a statement on December 24th, 1916, which stated that U.S. troops could remain in Mexico if their presence was necessary, but otherwise should withdraw. Now, it took them from December or from September 6th to December 24th to come to this agreement. So again, more things change, more they say the same. Um, Carranza rejected this agreement, sensing that it allowed for an indefinite U.S. presence. However, the talks did suffice to ease tensions, and the U.S. troops prepared for withdrawal and recrossed the border on February 5th, 1917. Via successfully escaped from both armies looking for him. And after the punitive expedition, Via remained at large, but he never regained his former stature or military power. Carranza's loss of Obregón as chief general in 1917 and his preoccupation with the continuing rebellion of the Zapatista and Filistia forces in, south, in the South prevented him from applying sufficient military response to rid him of his Pancho Villa problem. The Pancho Villa. Yeah. <laughs> like Pulp Fiction yeah, here. The, 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 the Marvin? What was or it? No, what was it? The Oh, what was her name? Start of the D. I don't remember. Diana? No, Dorothy? I don't remember. I don't remember. Anyway. Few of the Chihuahuans who could have been formed on Villa were inclined to cooperate with the Carranza regime. Villa's last major raid was on Ciudad Juarez in 1919. And in 1920, Villa negotiated peace with new president Adolfo de la Huerta and ended his revolutionary activity. He went into semi-retirement with a detachment of 50 guards for protection at the Hacienda of El Canulito. Canutio. Okay, so this is kind of, he ended up at his own hacienda, mm, yeah. and that's what he's fighting for. But I, weird, I don't know but... if he compromised his principles, or this is just what he needed for his protection. Yeah, who knows? Know. He was assassinated three years later in 1923 in Paral, Chihuahua, in his car. The assassins were never arrested, although a Durango politician, Jesus Salas Barranza, oh, Barraza, sorry, publicly claimed credit. Although there is some circumstantial evidence that Obregón or Plutarco Elias Calles was behind the killing. Well, you know, Pancho had been a lot of enemies over his life. Could have been anybody, yeah. honestly. I mean, there were a lot of people who had a motive to whack him. Today, Villa is remembered by many Mexicans as a folk hero. If we had more time, we could discuss... It, it, this story is even more complicated, and we don't have time. But if we did have time, we could discuss Via's relationships with Germans during World War One. So wait, was he pro not or not? Well, it wasn't Nazis at that time, but pro German, anti German. I want to get to that. Okay. Okay. So to make it just to make it brief, it looks like he played both sides for his own benefit. Typical Pajo Via. Yeah, but it it involves money for arms. Money diverted to different accounts, all f- 
this is all stuff that good spy novels are made of. I mean, this part of the Pancho Villa story, if we had time, we could make our own episode out of this right here. There, wow. there, there's a lot of stuff that we could cover, but we just don't have time. So here it comes. The, the, you know there's more to this story. Yeah, there, there's more to this story. According to Western folklore, grave robbers decapitated his corpse in 1926. Like I said, I warned you up top, there's a headless guy. Um, purported death mask alleged to be Villas was hidden at the Radford School in El Paso, Texas until the ni- until 1970 when it was sent to the National Museum of the Revolution in Chihuahua. Other museums have ceramic and bronze representations that, quite frankly, just don't match the mask. The location of the remainder of Via's corpse is in dispute. Some say it may be in the city cemetery in Parallel, Chihuahua, or in Chihuahua City, or in the Monument of the Revolution in Mexico City. How do they not know? I don't know. I mean, I guess It's not like it was a super, super long time ago. I don't know. Someone, wow. I mean, someone dug it up. His body well, up. yeah, I guess yeah. that's true. Yeah. Tombstones for V exist in both places. And you know what? Maybe part of him's there and part of him's... It uh, could be. And just to add to the story, a pawn shop in El Paso, Texas, claims to be in possession of Via's preserved trigger. <laughs> his preserved trigger finger. <laughs> what are you going to do with Pancho Via's trigger finger? How are you going to prove it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean... If they found his body, I guess they could. I guess you could some DNA, DNA test it, but yeah, yeah but if they found his body. Yeah. Now, his final words. This sounds like something straight out of a Mel Brooks movie. So his final words were reported as, "No permitas que esto acabe así. Cuentales que he dicho algo," which translates to, "Don't let it end like this. Tell them I've said something." All right. <laughs> which is like the most. I don't, it just I sounds like, like I said, it sounds like the most Mel Brooks ending ever. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them I said something profound. Yeah. So that is the story of Pancho Villa. We, we could have gone into more detail, like with the relationship with Germans during World War II and Mexico's whole thing. And that had a lot to do with actually because it was 1917. Mm. Um, General Pershing was chasing, and there's a lot of spy stuff going on right here. And the United States had cables, and they had information about Germany's re- relationship with Mexico and bringing arms in, and that would tie up this and that, and money, and especially troops and resources. So, per I mean, Wilson and the United States had reason to stop this because they were getting ready to send U.S. troops to France to fight World War One, so it, it's very very complicated. If you really want to know, what do we tell them? Do your own research and educate yourself. Absolutely, the yep. information's out there. Just gotta go looking for it. Yeah, hopefully we've sparked your interest a, enough that you'll want to do this. Yeah, I, I, I also recommend that movie. It's uh, I think it's highly fictionalized, or at least partially fictionalized, but it's really entertaining. I'm excited to go finish it. Um, which is what we're going to do right after we end the show. I got a little bit of work to do. Wait, what? I have a little bit of work to do to get this out. Well, all right then. I'll finish it while you get the show out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So anything big coming up? We're supposed to have a really good stretch of weather coming up. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm ready for it. I'm 
Tired of the cold. Yeah. You know what? It was fine, though. We got one big dump, and then we're done. At least Spring we don't, time now. At least we're not living in uh, Michigan, where it's cold. Yeah. Up, up, Thoughts, up, too, up for our uh, our friends down in um, Kentucky. I know y'all have been dealing with some flooding issues. Our friends down in Texas going through their own problems. So um, just thoughts going out to, to all of you guys that are, that are dealing with those nature issues. They're saying it's going to be a real bad year for tornadoes. Um, so just a, a piece of advice. Because uh, of what? El Nina. Oh, La Nina. La Nina. La Nina. Okay. A piece of advice that we learned kind of the hard way uh, when tornadoes ripped through here a couple years ago. Get, if you have a basement, prep your basement, get some like MREs and water and stuff. Uh, keep it in your basement, <laughs> some blankets. Some canned food. <laughs> canned food. If you have access to MREs, get those. Uh, some And something that we we didn't even think about until tornadoes came through here. It's a good idea to make copies of your driver's license, of um, your- Just those like, wedding- your bank statement or your bank account information. Uh, we didn't even, it was not something that we ever really thought about until uh, I was reading a story of a local lady who went to try to get a new debit card and, and she had no identification. The tornado took her identification. So it's always a good idea to have copies of, of important documents and stuff. Keep them in maybe like a lockbox in your basement or, um, or just like a go box that you can take with you if you're hiding in the bathtub for a tornado or whatever else. If you have, if you live in a place that has natural disasters, um, consider making copies of your, of your yeah. information. Yeah. An- another good thing to have is either a battery powered radio or a crank radio so you can get information because if power goes out, yep. you're, you're going to want to know where food is, where resources are. There's just, and our, our little town in Beaver Creek experienced this, which will be two years in on Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. And it's important to have this stuff. It sounds like, eh, well, you know, it'll never happen. But we didn't think it would happen to us. We yeah, we didn't would, think it happened. We were not like in a normal path of a tornado, but we, we there we were. Yeah. So. so just a little PSA for everybody as we get ready for this spring weather craziness that happens every year. They say it's going to be bad this year. So. Yep. Okay. And the so- locust plague is coming. It's- like the end of end of days. <laughs> All right. Well, like Shout I said, last week. Shout out to our week. friends in Iceland who are going through eighteen thousand earthquakes in a week. Yeah. They say that there's going to be a volcano, but it's going to be kind of a an anticlimactic not, not volcano. The, not the explosive. It's going to be like a <laughs> volcano. They, they may have to change the uh, terrain maps a little bit. As yeah, the volcano. From what I read, it's going to be like uh, those science experiments where you put the baking, I got yeah in the vinegar much. and stuff like that and let it kind of just boil and yeah. roll out. So we, Iceland, we hope that's what it is. Iceland, you're listening. Stay safe. Be careful. Yep. All right. I think that'll about wrap up this all week. Right. So Kim, how do they get hold of us? Find us on all the things on um, Instagram and Facebook. It's an hour of your life. On Twitter and Gmail, it's a lost hour. Um, so. Yep. And remember, if you're in Ireland, you want to be on the show. Drop us a line. Drop us a line. We'll get you on. Yep. And folks, help us out. Tell your friends about us. We'd like to get some more followers, and we just want to just build our audience up. And yep. Because we if have fun doing this. We do. We don't want to just do it for ourselves, um, although we would. Uh, if there is something that you want to hear, if you, if you don't have the time to do your research and educate yourself and you want us to do it for you, drop us a line. Let us know what you want us to talk about, and we'll research it for you. All right. I think that's it. That's it. 
All right. So from our studios, from the 13th hour studio in Sugar Creek Township, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Why is that so hard? I don't know. I I know where I live. Do you know know where you live? I know where I live. Okay. Sources this week include the New World Encyclopedia, Audi.com, the U.S. Department of State, numerous visits to Google Translate, and of course, the Wright State University Spanish Department.